Hello listeners, this is Emily Am from Democrats for Education Reform, and you're listening to Ed Chats from DFRS Media Team. From its inception, our nation's public education system has been rooted in inequity, spanning lines of race, gender, gender identity, class, sexual orientation, native language, zip code, and disability. In efforts to change the status quo, education thought leaders and political minds are revolutionizing the education space. Every month, we sit down with a few of these leaders and discuss what's being done right now to advance a high-quality, equitable education system for every student. On this week's episode, we're chatting with ERN Deputy Director of Higher Ed Policy, James Murphy, and his Social Mobility Elevator College Rankings that just released this morning. Alongside Dr. Marshall Anthony Jr., Research Director at the Institute for College Access and Success, and Michael Preston, Executive Director at the Florida Consortium of Metropolitan Research Universities, representing three universities that are in the top 50 universities for social mobility, according to James Murphy's Social Mobility Elevator Rankings. We begin the conversation discussing the newly released rankings and report with James Murphy. Thank you so much for being here with us today, James. So thank you so much again for giving us some of your time um, talking through this report. So this report just released this morning, um, analyzing how well four-year colleges and universities help to realize social mobility by providing access to students from low-income households and students of color who are underrepresented in higher education and support all students need to graduate. Um, you call these rankings social mobility elevators. Can you talk to us about social mobility in higher education and how you came to determine this list? Sure. Um, first, let me just say thank you for having me on and giving me the chance to talk about this work. Um, the thing to unpack here is both social mobility and elevators, right? So to unpack those two terms, let's start with social mobility and just simply defining that. So... To put it very bluntly, when people talk about social mobility, um, it's the notion that you're going to be better off than your parents were, right? Um, or better off as an adult than the situation into which you were born. And this is kind of founding American myth, belief, principle, whatever you want to call it. But it's an important part of the American idea, right? This idea that you would come to this land um, and you had you did not face the barriers of sort of you know entrenched aristocracy, and you could become something more um, than you were born into. Okay, um, that's a you know there's there's a lot to quibble with in that myth, and you know who came where and who was already here, and and all these important ideas, right? Who was given the opportunity to rise? That's all important to say in there. But it is again an idea that I think unites most people right and left to this notion that America should be a place where if you have the opportunity and you put in the effort, you can rise in socioeconomic status. I think it's more about the situ the ability to lead a life in which most of it is not spent in fear of financial catastrophe, right? Right. Um, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Um, and I think a large number of Americans live in that in that situation, right? So college, higher education has for a long time played an important role in social mobility. Um, you know, a lot of people will date this to the GI mm -hmm. Bill, right? So soldiers returning from World War II were given unprecedented opportunity to attend college, um, go and get degrees. And this was a large experiment by the federal government um, that was incredibly successful, um, although not as broadly successful as one would hope. It, and we know for a fact that the GI Bill's benefits did not go, for instance, to African-American veterans of the war and anywhere near the numbers that it did to, to white veterans. Um, but still, um, the GI Bill is a great instance of showing how college, how higher education can lift people up um, economically. So this idea is very common, um, very popular pretty widely endorsed that college should be a social mobility engine or ladder. These are the, the, the metaphors that people tend to use. Uh, we landed when we first did these rankings in 2020 on the word elevator, because the idea that an elevator is large, right? Um, 
that it lets a lot of people on. It can lift large numbers of people up, right? And so this these rankings are about the institutions that lift up a lot of people, right? That are not admitting a few low-income students or a few students of color who do in fact do incredibly well at those institutions and go on to great careers. Um, we're talking about the institutions that enroll thousands of students every single year and graduate a large majority of them um, and propel them into higher socioeconomic status. Absolutely. Uh, or you look at your social mobility elevator report, you do have these institutions listed in a ranking system. And there are many ranking systems out there that thousands of prospective freshmen look at each year. So can you talk to us about how your rankings are different than the ones that are currently already out there? Yes. Um, so let me say that, that I, I think of there being basically two kinds of rankings broadly um one one is a one so one group one group of rankings are designed for consumers right so students and families who are facing the decision of going to college um and the most famous of those is obviously u.s news and world reports best colleges right that name best colleges list right then there are other rankings that focus more on social mobility Ability, um, typically. Um, and so this is where we talk about places like Washington Monthly, which has been doing college rankings for, gosh, I think decades at this point. Um, or if you look at uh, another uh, mobility ranking uh, that came out recently, Third Way uh, released its economic mobility indicator rankings, I believe is what it's called, um, which are excellent. Um, those ranking systems um, for my money, tend to be well, what tend to be less the focus of consumers because one, most consumers don't know them. Um, I mean, when you say rankings, ninety nine percent of people are going to think U.S. News and World Report. Um, they're going to think about the best colleges rankings that they see at the airport, um, and that you know, if you Google, you'll hit them very quickly online. So they're very, very present in people's lives, and I think a lot of people, even people who work at institutions, at, at colleges, and universities, and in high schools, don't know about any other rankings. I think about these rankings as um, as an opportunity to shine a light on colleges that don't get enough light shined on them. I think is how you say that. Not shown. I don't know. Um, <laughs> they're they're an These rankings are an opportunity to <clears throat> call attention to colleges that don't get enough attention. All right. Um, so we. Uh, are looking at institutions. Most of them are public. Most of them are very large. Many of them are public. Many of them are very large, but not exclusively. Uh, that enroll high numbers of students who get what are called Pell Grants from the federal government, um, uh, and that are also enroll high percentages of students of color, of underrepresented students of color, to quickly define those two things. A Pell Grant is a federal grant from the Department of Education typically goes to students from households making under $60,000. And the majority, in fact, go to students coming from households making under $30,000, right? So poor students. Um, and when we're talking about underrepresented students of color, we're used, there's a couple ways you could define that, but we're using the sort of most common measure of those. So we're talking about students who are identify as Black or African-American, Hispanic or Latino, um, Native, Native Alaskan, um, Native Hawaiian, or uh, Asian, or Pacific Islander. So essentially leaving out white, students who identify as white, um, dual race or multiple races, and Asian American. Um, so that's, that's, these are, these are the two sort of kind of key metrics here, right? How many Pell students do you enroll? What percentage of the students at your institution have Pell Grants? What's the graduation rate for the students with Pell Grants, right? Because it's not just about being accessible and enrolling students from low-income households. It's about graduating them. Um, and then uh, the percentage of students at your institution who are uh, underrepresented students of color. So those are kind of the core metrics that form the foundation of it. Yes. So when you're evaluating social mobility, you're looking at graduation rates and accessibility to resources in an institution. Are you following students after to not only look at graduation, but hiring after post-college? 
Yes. Yes. Um, right. So it's um, and when you go to our website, you will see there's a whole methodology page that explains the rankings. It's and, and how we generated the scores for schools. It's complicated. Um, so we begin just to kind of run through this quickly. We, were, we begin with a core number of just simply how many Pell students with Pell grants are enrolled full time or part time um, as undergraduates. Um, uh, undergraduates are the only people who can get a Pell grant. It's not for grad students. Um, and then that percentage of Pell um, and then the Pell grad rate. The first time we did these rankings in 2020, those were basically the only measures we used, those three numbers. Um, and it didn't take very long at all on publishing those um, in the middle of the pandemic or the height of the pandemic to, to realize uh, we could have done more. Um, for instance, um, we didn't at all address race. Uh, we didn't at all address ethnicity, right? And I think that... If we're talking about social mobility and the, the ability of colleges to have a transformative effect, not just in individual lives, right, um, but on families and communities and the nation, um, we also really, really have to include race in that measure because there's a huge gap between uh, uh, college completion or bachelor's degree attainment. That's probably the better way to put it. There's a huge gap between in bachelor's degree attainment um, between white and Asian American as over Americans over the age of 25 and African American and Latino Americans and, and native um, uh, populations as well over the age of 25. Like just shocking gaps and they're growing, right? This is the thing. Like we've 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 been pretty successful as a country in closing the high school graduation gap. It hasn't been a race, but it's it's certainly shrunk over the decades. We, that has not happened with college at all. Um, and this goes back to what you were asking earlier um, about like the role college plays in social mobility. In, in some sense, this is a way that higher education is, has made things worse um, because as attainment has gone up among Asian American students and among white students, um, students of color uh, have not kept pace. Um, and so even though they've improved, they have not improved as much um, as, as other groups. So we wanted certainly to include um, underrepresented students of color in there. Um, so that's those are kind of the core numbers. But then as, when you're doing this kind of work, you start thinking like, all right, is this right though? Um, is this making the correct measurements? Um, so one adjustment we made, this is unique to us. And I should say, actually, let me back up and say, I promised to talk about how we're, ours was different. One big difference in ours is underrepresented is the is the usage of race and ethnicity um i don't know of any college rankings that measure that at at all um which is kind of shocking honestly um so i believe we're the first people the first the first ranking we produce the first rankings to do so um the next thing that is unique to us is what i call the state index and this gets a little bit thorny but hopefully i can explain it pretty quickly the idea here was to create a measure to take account for differences in states. It's a very large country um, that we live in um, and all states don't look the same, right? So I wanted to include a measure in here, the state index that would also account for how you perform within your state, right? Because to expect a state like I live in, like Massachusetts, to have the same percentage of students who are eligible for Pell Grants as students as, as a state like, say, Mississippi or Florida is unrealistic and unfair. So Massachusetts has one of the highest median incomes in the country. It doesn't mean we don't have poor people. It just means that people make more here um, and things are concurrently more expensive as well. Um, but because the federal Pell Grant uh, determination is national, um, you're just going to see fewer people in Massachusetts qualify uh, as a share of the populace than you would in a state like Florida, um, where incomes are lower and costs are lower. Um, the same thing on race as well. To expect um, a state like Vermont or Maine to have the uh, ethnic diversity, racial and ethnic diversity, as a Texas or a California is, well, is ridiculous. Um, so we wanted to look at within each state, how do you perform versus your peers?
And I want to circle back and touch on the race and ethnicity use in your methodology. A lot of people would argue that including those identities in that demographic data and determining your social mobility rankings is important because it creates a holistic view of students. It determines what their potential earnings are post-college, whether or not they make less. For example, a Black woman statistically makes less than her white male counterparts. And that, in all, uh, determines um, an accurate look at someone's social mobility. The flip side of that, as we've seen in some recent Supreme Court murmurings, is the doing away with race-conscious admissions and including race and ethnicity as something that should even be considered when we're enrolling students in college and when we're looking at the data and the graduation rates of kids from these universities. So why do you believe that it is important that race and ethnicity is something that you should focus on in these rankings to the point where you're now, as you've mentioned, the only college ranking that considers race and ethnicity? Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I'm not going to lie. Um, the upcoming Supreme Court decision about race conscious admissions absolutely factored into including uh, these measures and made it even clear how important uh, it would be to include these measures. Uh, also, the work that came out of the Institute for College Access and Success, they released a paper earlier this year um, talking about the importance of centering race and ethnicity and mobility rankings, all powerful influences on on thinking on you know on on redesigning the social mobility elevator rankings to include that um so i mean i think it's i think to put it basically uh there's a fantasy on the part of some uh advocates of college access that we can simply substitute um, economic measures to replace uh, race conscious admissions and we'll achieve the same levels of diversity right so if, if you just simply focus on zip codes and schools and other factors that it, it works just as good as a proxy for race and we can maintain diversity on campuses by using these what the Supreme Court calls race neutral alternatives. Um, the problem with that is uh, their evidence just doesn't bear out. Um, we know this. Um, there's terrific research on the University of California system, good research as well on the University on, on public institutions in Texas showing that these race neutral measures um, uh, are not nearly effective as um, race conscious measures for building more diverse campuses. I think, you know, part of it is just a numbers game, right? Just simply the shares of the population, right? So if you simply shift it to socioeconomics, um, you know, the percentage of, of Americans who are uh, not students of color is still the majority um, in, in America, just barely, but um, that if you shift to those measures, the benefits are going to be you know, distributed um, in much the same way that the population is distributed. And probably not even that, because then there is also the fact that um, poverty, opportunity um as you mentioned earlier like uh, income earnings after going to college or getting a graduate degree um these are all racialized as well in america right um that where you live is affected by by race how much your parents make is affected by race how much you will make is affected by race um and the, the again going back to the the attainment gap, right? So the, the gap between who has a bachelor's degree in America is right, we're not get we're not closing that gap. We are not shrinking it. Um, and so it's important, I think, to include in here a measure of those institutions that are doing a good job of enrolling students of color. And that, you know, and this is where I said before about how this could be connected to policy and to institutions. That is in part a measure, I think one of the one of the aspect or 
the the racial diversity on campus is in part reflecting how welcoming an institution is to students of color, right? You'll see, you'll notice uh, anyone who looks at the rankings that the institutions that are at the top of the best colleges rankings are usually at the bottom of our rankings. That's in part because they're typically smaller, um, but it's also because they don't do an amazing job of enrolling students who are Pell eligible, but they also very frequently do a lackluster job of enrolling students of color. And one factor there, there are many, but one factor there is I think that students of color will be less inclined to see themselves on those campuses, right? They do not find those campuses necessarily a welcoming environment. Um, and the Supreme Court decision when it comes out at the end of June will likely make this even, even worse. So I want to talk about the landscape of social mobility in higher education. Are you seeing an increase in these conversations or what's what's the current consensus on social mobility? Definite increase in conversations, right? <laughs> um, people, people are talking about this idea, right? We started at the beginning by uh, talking about how the very concept of social mobility, the idea that you will be better off than your parents were, is baked into sort of the American dream, right? In a sense, it is the American dream. Um, but it hasn't been a very large part of the conversation about higher education. I, I'd like to see our social mobility elevator rankings to be used less as a tool to hold wealthy institutions accountable. That's fine. A perfectly good use of it, but less focus on these small universities that aren't doing a good job in social mobility uh, and more focus. I'd like the, the thrust of it to be more about focusing on those universities in the top quarter, right? And it's important to say like we, we rank them from one to 1,429, but like the difference between number seven and number 70 is not massive, right? In the sense of like, if you're number 70, if you're in the top quarter, like you're doing a incredible work, like you're having a transformative effect on students' lives and on, on your community. Um, I would like these social mobility rankings to be less about calling out the institutions doing a poor job and more about calling out the institutions that are doing a good job so we can drive more resources to them and provide better support to them and to their students so even more students are benefiting from these kinds of institutions. So in a perfect world, you imagine that rankings like yours have actionable consequences at these universities. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So like, for instance, right now, Congress and the president are in a bit of a fight, right, over the budget and figuring out how much, what the budget is going to be for the next fiscal year. And part of that process is determining how much money all sorts of programs are going to get and how we're going to allocate money for higher education and education in, in total. Um, the I would like to see the social mobility elevator rankings be included in that discussion. So when the, the when Congress is considering whether or not to increase funding for students with Pell Grants or to increase even more interesting to me, funding for what are called post-secondary student success grants, which are designed to go to precisely these kinds of institutions that we highlight um, to help build programs, evidence-based programs that help these students complete college. Um, I would like to see these institutions get the attention they need and to get the funding that they deserve um, from the federal government and state um, funders as well. Are you at all concerned that institutions who are ranked, say, in the top 100, in the bottom 100, there are a lot of smaller universities outside of those two that are doing a lot of good work that they could potentially get lost in the shuffle? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we are, we do try to account for that in a couple ways. Um, so one thing that we did in the rankings is we created a kind of hypothetical ranking, which was to say, what if every university in America enrolled one student with a Pell Grant, right? Uh, in other words, like take out the count of students completely, right? So the thing that obviously 
favors very large institutions. Let's just take that out of the equation to say, like, you all have the same number of Pell students. We also took out the state index because the state in that state index number is also related to how many students you enroll. Um, so we took out the counts. And what ended up happening was kind of interesting. The changes were not nearly as big as I expected. Um, so California State, so Cal State uh, in Los Angeles, in the actual rankings that consider a headcount, the number of students you enroll uh, was ranked number one. In the hypothetical ranking where the number of students you enroll doesn't matter at all, they came in at number two. Most of the colleges that were in the top 10, when we considered size, stayed in the top 10. Um, and I think the reason for that is that the measure is not just size, it is also outcomes, right? It is also about affordability is another thing that we have not talked about. Um, we we introduced a, another new measure this year, which again, I believe is unique to our, uh, to our rankings, which is to combine how much it costs to go to a university, what's called the net price, which you actually pay, not the list tuition. So um, with the acceptance rate. So a a institution that costs like $10,000, but admits 50% of students um, will probably end up looking much better than an institution like a Washington and Lee University or, or um, even better example, um, William and Mary in Virginia. If you go get into William and Mary with a Pell Grant, it's incredibly affordable. It's, it's one of the cheapest public institutions in the country. It's an amazing deal. And there are rankings that call them out as like, what a great deal William and Mary is. The problem is so few people get in, right? Their admit rate is so low when you interact that with the cost is this accessibility and affordability and it sort of wipes out the benefits. So the, certainly one thing I do want to mention is a glaring absence uh, for some people might be that we don't have community colleges in our rankings, right? So the first thing to say there is that that is not intended in any way to designate that community colleges aren't social mobility elevators. Um, we know for a fact that community colleges, you know, in total enroll many more first-generation students, many more palatable students, a disproportionate number, you know, share of students of color, adult learners, non-traditional learners, all of this. Um, so playing a, an immensely important role. Um, we didn't include them because uh, graduation rates are a very large part of the social mobility elevator rankings. Um, and I don't believe that graduation rates are the right metric by which to measure community college success. Right? Community colleges are often used as a launching pad for transfer. Many students may start at a community college thinking about an associate's degree, but they may go on to earn a certificate that propels them into a, you know, a very good career as well. Um, and because of the state of data on community colleges, it's not easy to track students' sort of success if they transfer out or if they pause and, you know, and leave. Do they come back later? We, you know, our data system is very dependent on where a student first enrolls and tracking them from there. So we left community colleges out because the graduation metric didn't make much sense. Affordability as well is, I mean, community colleges are incredibly affordable typically, um, and students tend not to take out as many loans. That was also going to end up, you know, um, giving a a somewhat distorting picture when you compare it to four-year colleges. Um, so I would want to call that out that we've we didn't include community colleges or and other even shorter higher ed programs than uh, than two-year colleges. Not because we don't think they matter, but because they're different enough that they it's too hard to compare them. And I want to thank you for giving us your time to talk through this report, to talk through the website and these rankings and why they are so significant. And we all should be paying attention to these universities that are doing so well, top 500, and the ones who are not. Well, it was a delight to talk about this. As you can tell, I, I have many, many thoughts. Um, I could talk for a lot longer about it, um, but I will not uh, I will not subject anybody else to that. Uh, so I just want to say I really, really appreciate coming on, Emily, and um, 
and look forward to talking more about this in the future. Yes. We're excited to hear next from Dr. Marshall Anthony Jr., Research Director at the Institute for College Access and Success, on the necessity of centering race and the conversation surrounding social mobility in higher ed, and talk through the TCAS report, Shifting Narratives, Centering Race and Defining and Measuring College Value. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today, Dr. Anthony. We are very excited to talk through your research and how specifically it aligns with the research that ERN has been doing on social mobility. Can you give our listeners some context on the work that you do at TCAS and how it relates to centering race and social mobility? Yeah, so um, again, good morning and good afternoon. I am Dr. Marshall Anthony Jr., the research director at the Institute for College Access and Success, also known as TCAS. We are a national nonprofit and nonpartisan organization originally based out of Oakland, California, with now ties in Washington, D.C., with federal policy, as well as the state of Michigan. And over the past 15 years, we have fought vigorously for a more equitable, affordable, and accessible higher education system that benefits students from all walks of life. This morning, ERN Deputy Director of Higher Ed Policy, James Murphy, released the Social Mobility Elevator Rankings, determining how well four-year colleges and universities in the nation help to realize social mobility. Um, this is by providing access to students from low-income households and historically disenfranchised students of color supporting the need to graduate. What are your thoughts on the current state of affairs with college rankings? There's been a strong backlash as of late, particularly with the U.S. News and World Report ranking. So can you give us your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, the promise of a college degree or college education operates on the belief that all students have equal opportunity for economic mobility or upward mobility. Um, but unfortunately, the benefits of a post-secondary credential are significantly shaped by students' racial and economic backgrounds. So it leaves this question of whether higher ed is this great equalizer um, that is often deemed or the great stratifier, um, further exacerbating um, already prevalent racial and economic disparities. That question alone really speaks to the fundamental root of most ranking systems that exist. Uh, it is ranking prestige and privilege um, or selectivity over is a college education actually doing what it's supposed to do for both the individual and both for society. And we do know that a college degree is often associated um, with better um, individual um, and greater broad social um, uh, indicators or as well as um, benefits. And so um, generally, um, when it comes to ranking systems, uh, because they do tend to prioritize prestige and selectivity, uh, we really can't get a sense and gleam uh, what the actual benefits of that degree is for that student or the magnitude of that benefit that the colleges provide to specific student groups. Um, however, uh, the new social mobility rankings uh, that Ed Reform Now just recently released uh, definitely speaks to and centers racial equity a part of the conversation. And so it is an example of if you're going to do a ranking system, then this might be one of the ways that it can be done about that can actually get to uh, higher ed being that great equalizer. So just in the work that you do in your experience, do you still see any value in doing college rankings? And what are certain quantifiers that you think need to be included in order to center racial equity in the way that it should be when we look at how colleges are performing for their students? Yeah, you know, for whatever reason, whether rankings should be the uh, measure or not, or the thing that is presented to consumers or user or prospective students and families of higher education, it seems like that's the mechanism that is going to be used for a while in some shape or form, whether it looks like the traditional um, uh, U.S. News and World rankings that are available, whether it's uh, Air Reforms Now, you know, Social Mobility Elevator, 
um, ranking. There are conversations right now at the federal level um, speaking to like listing programs by value um, that the education department is thinking about, um, as well as uh, more nuanced issues such as gainful employment for um, career education programs, getting a sense of their um, value and work for students. So it's a popular conversation that is happening now um, that if it's going to be one, um, which it seems like that's the uh, route that we are taking, that, you know, these traditional metrics or traditional metrics of post-secondary or post-collegiate success, they largely rely on economic indicators such as earnings and debt to measure college value. Um, the issue is those indicators alone don't account for how race and racism shape uh, student outcomes. And so, for example, the racial wealth gap. Black households have eight times less wealth than white households. Uh, and so is there an element of that considered within um, how race or racism shakes uh, a student's economic, uh, whether th when they're coming to college and when they leave college? Generally, that's not the case. Uh, there are also inequities in the federal financial funding formula. So assets like home equity and retirement savings are encountered within the formula used to determine students' financial aid, which we know have a direct tie into not only their, you know, outcomes in terms of persistence, retention uh, of the sort, but also their debt outcomes, right? We also know that there are schools um, and colleges that are historically underfunded. Community colleges receive half the funding that public four-year institutions receive. Minority-serving institutions like historically Black colleges and universities and Hispanic-serving institutions need billions more dollars to adequately support their um, students as well. So is there an element of um, funding disparities that are considered within um, understanding value. Typically, that's not the case, along with a host of other structural uh, racism issues, redlining, segregation, voter suppression, that inhibits college access, right? And so generally, these uh, topics of how race shapes economics or race shapes income are generally excluded from these conversations or generally excluded from rankings, um, which oftentimes make rankings a difficult thing to interpret um, um, beyond just prioritizing selectivity and prestige. Luckily, Air Reforms Now um, work does help center that race conversation um, within a ranking if you're going to do it, um, you know, because it helps contextualize what students are experiencing when they leave college or if they even leave college and still have, um, you know, positive or negative outcomes on their, um, on their earnings or debt. This just shows how complex the conversation is and how there isn't a simple answer to, is college worth it? I mean, as you've talked about, there are so many hindrances when it comes to even access to these universities. You look at post-graduation to the types of loans that some of these students are able to receive, the interest rates on those loans. You look at post-grad wage gaps that still haven't closed. I mean, the conversations around why it is so important to center race when we're talking about getting a holistic look at these students is so important. And the work that you're doing is foundationally important. And I wanna talk about the conversations on social mobility in higher ed and what you're seeing in the current landscape of these conversations. I do believe that we are starting to move beyond just talking about that these ranking systems may not be the best measure of success. Uh, we see more and more medical and law schools pulling out of uh, U.S. News and World Report's um, sort of ranking um, in a way that we haven't seen before. I think the pandemic uh, has allowed some type of pause to figure out like what is, why are we doing what we're doing? Um, and are these measures accounting for uh, the real life uh, academic, familial, um, and uh, just personal experiences that students are and work and work experiences that uh, today's students are encountering. So we are seeing some movement around um, from that. However, you don't go on uh, social media on any on any day, or you go to most college websites, especially selective institutions, and see that they are still amplifying. 
um, any type of ranking that they received that put them in a favorable light. Um, and so I, you know, while I do think that we are at least critiquing ranking systems in a way that we haven't done before, I'm still not seeing a concerted effort to center race within that conversation. Um, and so, and, and when you think about, I often mention this often, a lot of times, uh, you know, higher ed as we know it today is nearly just as old as chattel slavery. And so the first higher ed institution, Harvard founded in um, 1636, just shortly after the first um, recorded uh, incident of an enslaved person in the Americas, or what will become America in 1619. And so to think about how close those two significant dates are to still not have race centered within the conversation often speaks to, um, you know, how we have often treated race typically within this country, which is an acknowledgement, but not an active proactive solution to help close racial and economic disparities. Tell us about the big argument of the Tika's report, shifting narratives, centering race and defining and measuring college value and why we need to center race in conversations about social mobility. Absolutely. And so our main argument, or as some may call it, the thesis um, of our shifting narratives piece uh, really speaks to a clear uh, argument, which is race must be a central component when assessing the true value of a college education because of the unique realities that students of color navigate before, during, and after they leave college. And so speaking to some of those before factors, such as I mentioned, racial wealth gap, inequities, the federal financial aid formula, speaking to some of the things that they encounter once they get to college, right? Such as um, whether they do or do not attend an institution that is historically underfunded. Um, all of those things play a role, right? The uh, resources that they are receiving to get uh, to the resources that colleges have to help get students uh, across the finish line. All of those things play a role into college success. Uh, we know that we have a some college, no degree uh, crisis where over, um, uh, you know, millions of students, uh, particularly black and brown students, are going to college but not being able to finish their studies because college is not, as we know it, generally is not speaking to their uh, specific needs. And we saw this exacerbated with the COVID-19 pandemic. And so those things are not considered. And it has a direct tie uh, into the student debt crisis. Uh, one, it's student debt is hard for a majority of students today. Uh, it is particularly hard uh, for students of color, even more uh, specifically Black students. Structural racism puts Black students in a place to borrow more for school, um, owe more on their student loans, and default at twice the rate as their white peers. Um, and so when we think about all of these influences that play a role into getting students across the finish line, but even beyond, even if they get across the finish line, actually uh, experiencing equitable benefits on their college education, we're just not seeing that today. Um, and I, I can even speak to that as a Black man on paper. Uh, my, you know, academic transcripts really speak to, you know, the successes I had. And people may think that that's one side of the story. They have absolutely no idea about my personal experiences with student debt. And so if I'm one of the few who was considered a success and they don't know that part of the story, just imagine the multitude uh, of, um, of my community who have a similar experience and who don't have that experience because of the way that structural racism has played up into in, in, in this higher education context. And so thinking about that, that really rooted our argument and we speak about all of those things in our pieces. And really the top main findings that we found was without getting super wonky is that one, at colleges serving greater shares of students of color, students earn less and don't have the resources to pay down um, their debt. That's the first major finding. And the second is, and even more alarming, at colleges serving the largest shares of Black students, students owe more than they originally borrowed 10 years out. And so in thinking about that, you know, a lot of times you hear, um, uh, you know, a lot of times 
the onus of a student's outcome is placed solely on the student. And that has been an adage that has been used throughout time uh, in terms of if you didn't graduate or if you have the debt that you have, then it's by your fault. We hear things such as you should have just worked your way through school without any type of context of how inflation and tuition spikes have just completely put students in a different ball game in affording uh, the cost of college today. And so we're just interrogating uh, those aspects and trying to help shift not just the narrative, but also shift the responsibility on the institutions, on the on state policymakers, and on federal policymakers that, hey, we all play a role in student success, getting students across the finish line and ensuring that, um, that they are at least in a position where they can fully experience and um, the the and leverage the benefits of the credentials that they work so hard to receive. And this may be a bit of a complex question, but your report very well roundedly explains the ways in which we need to be centering race in admissions. What action steps do you believe need to be taken on behalf of these universities to more effectively serve their students when it comes to centering race and admissions conversations? Really great question. Um, again, our main piece is to help uh, shift responsibility um, for all parties involved to help get us to a higher ed system that actually benefits students from all walks of life. So that has to happen. Increasing the maximum Pell Grant award. Pell Grant is critical in helping to serve um, and helping to support uh, students of color be able to afford college. Um, back in uh, the mid-70s, the Pell Grant covered about 80% of uh, the cost at a, at a public four-year institution. Today, it's less than a third. And so we know it's critical. It shouldn't be the only solution, but ensuring that we maximize that award to help cover students' tuition and non-tuition expenses is super critical. And I would say, you know, the second part of like, what can... Uh, you know, what are some recommendations or what can federal and state policymakers do? Another is looking at the role of our uh, Department of Education. Right now, there is a lot of uh, uh, hunger and the conversation is right to having some type of measure or list to uh, determine uh, college value or program value. Uh, and we saw that recently through the RFI, looking for the uh, list of low college um uh, the, the ed department's sort of interest in listing, uh, listing uh, low-value college programs. We even see it now with the recent release of the uh, Gainful Employment um, NPRM notice for uh, notice of proposal for um, rulemaking. And so there is hunger out there to do so. And this is the time is right um, and ripe for the ed department to design a race-centered framework like our race and economic mobility metric, like ed reforms now, social mobility elevator, to guarantee equitable post-collegiate outcomes for students from all walks of life to uh, thrive with their college education. This blends very well into another point as we've talked about some potential action items on the federal level. You know, we're expected to hear at the end of the summer from the Supreme Court on their decision regarding affirmative action and race conscious admissions. What are your thoughts on the potential harm or fallout from a decision that were to go negatively and ban public universities from including race in the decision and process when it comes to admission? Yeah, you know, I want to be optimistic. The somewhat silver lining is that, you know, no matter how the Supreme Court, no matter how the Supreme Court bends the arc of, um, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the moral universe, there are things that the current, you know, President Biden and Harris administration, as well as the education part departments can do um, now. And especially if race conscious admissions um, is, you know, stripped in some way. Uh, we know that legacy admissions has been an issue for so long. We know that uh, merit-based or standardized test also exacerbates uh, racial inequities um, um, when it when we are thinking about college success. 
We know that transcript withholdings uh, has been an issue over the past recent years where students are literally students' uh, degrees and or if they're still in school coursework um, are being inhibited by simply owing a $20 to $30 parking pass or a library fine. So these are, you know, elements of, along with a host of other issues that the department um, can try to get a grasp on to uh, at least limit the amount of damage that a decision of banning race conscious admission it will inevitably have um, for uh, college success. And we see examples of this in, uh, I think there are about nine states that have banned affirmative action. Uh, one of both of uh, Tikas's key states, California and Michigan, are a part of those states. And we see that in those states, uh, researchers have found that shortly after uh, those state bans to affirmative action, uh, uh, the enrollment of Black and Brown students at selective institutions or highly rejective institutions, however you frame it, uh, decreased. Um, and so there are some um, really alarming potential uh, outcomes with a ban on affirmative action or ban on race conscious admissions. Um, and again, the which, which is devastating considering we have not even gotten close to what that executive order intended to have when signed back in the 60s. Are you at all concerned that recent legislation from Governor Ron DeSantis banning diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in Florida public universities could potentially have a negative impact on the students who are enrolled there, potentially causing students to transfer or drop out due to primarily students of color and our LGBTQ students no longer feeling safe on campus or that the campus is serving them in a way that they that meets their needs? Yeah, I, I will personally say the, you know, a lot of the recent news in Florida has hit me personally. I did my doctoral work down in Florida. And so uh, just seeing just some of the recent events there have been just absolutely devastating. I believe that, um, unfortunately, we're going to see a rise in very similar me measures. Uh, we even see it uh, shortly after DeSantis, we saw sort of very copy uh, and paste bills, one in my hometown, I mean, in my home state of uh, North Carolina is starting to follow very similar uh, uh, legislation and policies that are taking an aim directly at diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and so, you know, my hypothesis is we're definitely going to see, uh, we're, we already know they tend to take a hit on enrollment. Uh, I, I am concerned about the students who are enrolled and will that have a negative impact on them successfully graduating from college? Um, I just, you know, again, as I had sort of mentioned earlier, until states, the, the larger federal government, colleges, you know, local contact get on board that having a college educated population is beneficial for society including the economic, benef economic benefits that uh, to society, it will continue to look um, like this. For right now, there's just this notion that higher ed is only a private good, that um, I am the only one or the student is the only one who is benefiting uh, from receiving a post-secondary credential. And we just know that that is not the case. I am deeply concerned that... Uh, that we're reverting in several ways at both the national and definitely in a couple of state contexts. And so the question becomes, you know, what level of impact will that have on society? And I don't think it's going to have a favorable one um, at all. So this is the time to help sound the alarm, to help uh, have conversations like this that link uh, mobility to access, to completion, to affordability, uh, to back-end and front-end affordability, um, because all of these pieces of the puzzle are so integral to ultimately having a higher education system that we can actually not just deem as a great equalizer, but actually be a great equalizer again, for, for students from all walks of life. to talk to us through all of these different conversations today and why it is so foundationally important to be centering race in these conversations about 
access, affordability, and, and post-college success. Thank you so much for having me. Up next, we sat down with Michael Preston, Executive Director at the Florida Consortium of Metropolitan Research Universities, to discuss how Florida International University, which ranked number three in the SME rankings, University of Central Florida, and University of South Florida are all serving students in a way that increases social mobility. Um, so I wanted to start by kind of if you could give us a little bit of your background and explain your relationship to the universities and how you represent them. Sure. My, my name is Michael Preston. I'm the executive director of the Florida Consortium of Metropolitan Research Universities. Uh, I've been in this role since 2015. I get a really nice opportunity to work with three progressive metropolitan research universities in the University of Central Florida. University of South Florida and Florida International University, where we represent over 175,000 students uh, in Florida um, panhandle. And that catapults very well into the topic um, that we want to discuss today. So this morning, um, Education Reform Now Deputy Director of Higher Ed Policy, James Murphy, uh, released the social mobility elevator rankings determining how well four-year colleges and universities in the nation help realize social mobility by providing access to students from low-income households and students of color who are underrepresented in higher education and how these universities support all students need to graduate. So Florida International University, the University of Central Florida, and the University of South Florida all ranked in the top 50 of the social mobility elevator rankings, with FIU ranking number three in the nation. Can you talk to us about the significance of these universities ranking in the top 50 and how social mobility is a focus for you on behalf of advocating for students? Sure. I, I really believe that it is a story on meeting the moment for our students here in Florida. Our three universities, what I think is unique about all three of them is that they grew up in the communities as those communities. So we knew exactly who our clients were, meaning our students um, and how to serve them from the ground up. We're all young universities. All of our institutions are less than 70 years old respectively. And so I think there weren't any rules for us as we were developing uh, how we were going to engage our students and who we were going to admit and make sure that they were um, being successful. So that relationship then um, really translates into the more students we give access to higher education through whatever means possible, the more successful our cities are going to be, both economically but also socially. So that creates a really um, um, wonderful experience for not only our students, but our cities as well. And I want to touch on the Pell students. Your graduation rate for Pell students at FIU, UCF, and USF were all around 60 to 70 percent, which is very impressive and a lot higher than your peer institutions. So what is your secret sauce? I want to talk about what you're doing to keep Pell grad rates so high, and more importantly, what other access-oriented institutions could copy to increase theirs. Oh, that's a great question. I I really feel like what we do with our Pell students is we don't treat them like Pell students. We we bring them in with the same expectations that we have for all of our students. Um, we often look at college students who are on Pell or maybe who are coming in with other uh, needs as students that we need to fix. And we don't believe that. We believe that our students come in with the, all the skills needed in order to be successful. So I think it starts, I think it starts there. That's the, that's the first level. Uh, secondly, we do have a lot of support for our students who are coming in who may um, be in a situation where they need additional support. So we've got uh, student academic resource centers in all three campuses that help uh, those students that really need academic support, both personally, but also in a large uh, audience. We have bridge programs over the summertime, which help uh, get an early start for our students. And a lot of those students happen to be college students. Um, we uh, have updates and, and keep in touch with our Pell students uh, throughout their, their tenure at our three institutions. And uh, quite frankly, um, 
we we allow them once again to have that flexibility to be able to do things like work and do other other things that they need to do in order to support uh, their fa- their families. Most of our Pell students too are local students, so they happen to come from the neighborhoods that we serve. So um, there's a real um, opportunity there for us to connect with their families, and so our family and parent programs are important uh, to us uh, throughout this uh, whole process. Um, and then we try to supplement some of the expenses of college through other means, um, through additional scholarships and, and other discounts that help uh, fill in the gap for some of our Pell students um, as, as they come in. We know it's not perfect. Um, and we certainly need to increase uh, some uh, Pell access for our students. And, and if we can do that, we know that there's this whole middle class of students that would be reached through, um, you know, projects like thinking about doubling Pell eligibility, um, as well as uh, understanding uh, some of the other financial aid packages that are being batted about in both Washington and Tallahassee uh, to think about the needs of our students. But <clears throat> really, it, it comes and starts with the idea that we believe that, that Pell students are just students. And so if we can provide them the same uh, experience, uh, despite the fact that maybe they have to, to work or do some other things, and uh, they're going to be better off for it in the, in the long run. And we kind of have to, because it's so many of them. I mean, uh, most of our students uh, qualify for some form of uh, financial aid in which they don't have to pay back. So if it's not Pell, it's some other type of grant aid that they have. And uh, if we aren't really thinking and focusing on their needs, um, our graduation rates are going to look pretty dismal. Yeah, and you know, no system is ever perfect, but it is great work as we can see reflected in the rankings that your institutions are doing, and that's absolutely something to highlight. Um, and I do want to follow up the flip side of that onto how you think that you could do even better. I mean, given these institutions, your accessibility, affordability, size, I mean, you're doing phenomenal work. And I want to touch on the other third of students who are not graduating. Presumably some are transfers, um, but surely not all of them. So what would it take to get these grad rates even higher? Or would it be to get loan repayment rates even stronger? Um, we're talking about that right now. There's a lot of real conversations. Um, we think in particular with transfer students that um, uh, one of the major ways that we can help increase those graduation rates is uh, getting them better information to uh, to to know what their degree pathways are prior to transfer. So in many cases, those degree pathways really are after they've um, they've applied and uh, have decided that they're going to attend, say, UCF from Valencia College. Uh, we want to we want to strengthen those pipelines ahead of time. So so we've got a couple things. Right now we're under um, a project we're calling our transfer success network, and we've got three. We've got three solutions that we're testing out uh, as we speak. The first is we're increasing the number of college coaches that we have, um, you know, essentially academic life coaches that we have both at the state college level, but also the university level. So students, especially transfer students, have a person they can go to outside of the academic advising room. So for those personal items that they need, there's support there to help them uh kind of navigate the, the work that needs to happen through the uh, throughout their college, but especially through that transfer transition. Uh, the second is Florida International University is doing some work where they're linking financial aid packages to some of this college coaching. So in, in order to receive certain elements of their financial aid package, they have to, they have to receive college coaching and, and check in so that they are receiving that additional support so that we can just make sure that they've got a person because we do believe in the power of just having a person on our campus uh, that every student feels comfortable coming and asking a question to. So that's a, that's a huge piece. The third is that information piece. So we're trying to build multi-institutional um, dashboards where students can go in and they can find out how their courses are going to transfer, what they're going to be worth uh, in terms of the, the transferability of those courses, and then how are they best applied to different academic programs that they're interested in? So they can shop around this information ahead of time, uh, and they can feel comfortable that once they hit apply, uh, they are going to be in an academic program that speaks to them. Because what we don't like to see happen, and this does happen all too often with our transfer students, 
they think they're going to go into one degree program. They get in and they find that that they don't meet the degree requirements in order to declare for that major. And so they find themselves in another major that is less attractive to them. Once that happens, those students have a tendency to be more vulnerable for melt. Because think about it. I came in, I wanted to be a nursing student. I find out that I'm not prepared to be a nursing student. And so now I'm in psychology or sociology. I, I'm less interested now. And so maybe I find a job or an opportunity. Um, for uh, other students, it's a matter of making sure that we have the student support services on campus at scale that are available for them when there is this moment of disruption. Uh, being in a metropolitan university, one of the things that we do understand is that there's a lot of things going on around them. Most of our students, they come to campus, they love being a part of campus, but they also have social networks that are outside of their their university social network. So if we can um, build supports that allow for them to utilize their social network within the university community, they're far more likely to graduate. If their social networks are outside of that university community, there's a greater chance that something's going to pull them away. And it might be for a positive reason. There might be a job that opens up an opportunity and they want to take that. So how do we then get them to loop back in um, and to finish that degree over time. Uh, that's something we're trying to solve for. Um, I don't know if we're really that great at it yet, but certainly um, we know that we've got kind of the intellectual know-how to make this happen. It's just a matter of, of trying to get that 60 and 70% to 80%. If we, can, if we can get up there, then we know that we're producing a lot more students uh, who are gonna go on and get that degree and, and find that job. I want to thank you for sharing your time, expertise, and running us through some of the amazing, incredible programs that FIU, UCF, and USF are doing. Um, it was phenomenal to hear about the work that you're doing and unpack some of the ways that other access-oriented institutions can try to model after your work and increase their graduation rates, their Pell student grad rates. Awesome. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun.